the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today as we continue our study in the book of 2 Samuel, David chooses to publicly confess his sin, repent, and accept the consequences. We'll pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 12 verse 13. The title of the message is, David's Fall. The Confession. Second Samuel chapter 12. The whole theme of the book of Second Samuel is a heart after God. And as we've been studying David for the last few chapters, he has not had a heart after God. David thought he had gotten away with his sin, but a, a visit from Nathan the prophet brought everything into the open. So now we're going to find out what David will do at this moment. Does David threaten to execute or imprison or run down those who question his behavior? Or does David come clean? And what about the deeper question? Even if David comes clean, is there forgiveness? Is there forgiveness for people who do the things David did? And is there any hope of moving forward when you've lived wickedly and hurt others? Well, we're going to find out. Second Samuel 12, verse 13. Right after Nathan pronounces God's discipline upon David, David said unto Nathan, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. I, most literally, I am guilty of violating God's law, is what that statement means. And it implies that a penalty must be paid for the wrongdoing. Now, if we just take the words, I have sinned, at face value, David's response to Nathan exposing his sin doesn't seem any different than Pharaoh or Saul at first. Pharaoh responded to Moses twice by saying the words, I have sinned. Saul also, when Samuel confronted him with wrongdoing, said the words, I have sinned. So why does God spare David, but not Pharaoh and not Saul, when they say the exact same words? Well, a little context is important here. Turn over to Exodus with me, and let's have a look at Pharaoh's words. Exodus 9.27 tells us, And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron, and he said unto them, I have sinned. Anything else in your Bible? This time. I have that underlined in my Bible because it's important. 
The Lord is righteous, and I and my people are wicked. Entreat the Lord, for it is enough that there be no more mighty thunderings and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. I have sinned this time, Pharaoh? We're seven plagues in by this point, buddy. What do you mean this time? How about Exodus 10, verses 16 and 17, the next time he says these words? Exodus 10, 16, then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in case. This is one plague later. And he said, I have sinned against the Lord, your God, and against you. Now, therefore, forgive, I pray you, my sin only this once. And entreat the Lord, your God, that he may take away from me this death only. Pharaoh's confession I put it in air quotes, confession had stipulations to it, additions to the confession. We'll find something similar if we examine King Saul. Turn to 1 Samuel, not too far from where we are in 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel 15. This is the second time that Saul blows it. The first time is when he sacrificed before Samuel got there, thinking that he could just go through the motions of this and satisfy the people so they wouldn't stop running away from him. Now the second time, Saul has disobeyed the Lord. 1 Samuel 15, verse 30, after Samuel tells Saul that the kingdom's going to be ripped from him, then he, Saul, said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now, I pray you, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Similar statements, by the way, that Pharaoh and Saul make. Your God, both of them use that phrase. Interesting enough. I've sinned against your God. But again, yet honor me now in front of everyone so it seems like everything's okay. I have sinned, but can you just do this for me? Stipulations, additions. Any sentence that is, I have sinned, but fill in the blank, is an oxymoron. (laughs) The first part of that sentence doesn't agree with the second part if there's a, I have sinned, but that comes afterwards. It ignores the submission to the deserved penalty part of a confession. It's like I'm saying, I'm guilty, yes, but not so guilty I deserve the penalty that you say I deserve. And so when David says the words only, I have sinned against the Lord. There's no stipulation, no additions. It's a simple confession. I am guilty and I deserve everything you've pronounced upon me. And yet, there is something deeper that David accepts that Nathan has not mentioned up to this point. Nathan has told him, you're going to have wars from now on from your own bloodline is going to come up rebels against you, take the kingdom from you. What Nathan has not said is, and for your murder and adultery, which are capital crimes, you shall die. David has no promise that God isn't going to kill him. And so when David simply says, I have sinned against the Lord, David is also accepting that he deserves to die for what he did. And he's prepared to face that as well. In 1 John 1 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word confess 
it means to say the same thing. Homo logio, to say the same thing. Same thing as who? The same thing that God says about my sin. That it's wrong. And it deserves whatever judgment God says it deserves. And that is what I say to God about my sin. God promises to forgive me and to change me. And so at the end of verse 13 here, we see Nathan's response. Nathan said unto David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Put away means to remove guilt and often the associated punishment. You shall not die as a result of God removing the guilt. Death was the appropriate punishment for an adulterer or for a murderer. And so David is forgiven and the guilt is removed. Now, forgiveness and even the removal of punishment does not mean that our sin will not have consequences. There are natural consequences to our sin that have nothing to do with God's judgment. Sometimes people will make a very bad decision and it's, ah, God's judging me. And I'm like, no, you're just sowing what you reaped. That's just life. It's a a life principle. My very first pastor used to say, you can't sow your wild oats and pray for a crop failure. And so when we sow to the flesh, we reap corruption. We reap things that die. Now, in addition to that, sometimes, depending upon how our sin impacts those around us, God must discipline us in a way that others know that God was not okay with what, what we did. And so even though David will not die and God has removed the guilt, verse 14, he says, how be it, which means even though you won't be put to death, because by this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto you shall surely die. The phrase here that you have given great occasion to blaspheme It's all one phrase. It it means you've caused great disrespect amongst the Lord's enemies. Those who are opposed to God, who, who God is trying to reach, this has caused great disrespect for the Lord, that now they fear God even less. And so the child that is born unto thee, plural, him and Bathsheba, shall surely die. So David would experience the two previous disciplines that Nathan announced earlier, plus this obviously heart-wrenching loss. Now, when we read this, probably one of the first thoughts that come to mind is, the child didn't do anything wrong. Why are you taking him? True, but this wasn't about the child. It was about God's enemies understanding an important truth. And that important truth is, said in a verse that I partially quoted already in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. In Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8, verse 7, it says, do not be deceived. Now, you need to understand something. Anytime the Bible says don't be deceived, it means people are going to be deceived. They're going to not believe this. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that sows to his flesh of the flesh reap corruption, but he that sows to the Spirit of the Spirit reap life everlasting. God was not going to be mocked by what David did. In my lack of wisdom, 
I sometimes wonder, God, could have you not communicated that truth that you won't be mocked some other way than killing the child? But when I have those thoughts, that's simply a reminder of how pride is always waiting to rise up in my heart. I, who do not know everything and make many mistakes, am a poor substitute for God in deciding what is just and right or what is most effective. And so while I don't understand why this was the only way that God could prove something that is very true and needs to be understood, that he will not be mocked, I must cling to the same faith that Abraham had when he said, surely the Lord of all the earth will do what is right. And if we call ourselves a Christian, it comes down to the fact of whether we believe that or not. We just sang it. I mean, it's easy to sing that song when you're not going through something like this. I say thanks, even in the waiting. I say thanks, even in the breaking. As long as I have breath. Do we mean it? Do we believe that he's, he's still good? So, while we don't understand this fully, we must cling to the same faith that Abraham had. Surely the Lord of all the earth will do what is right. In Romans chapter 2, verse 2, it tells us very clearly that God's judgment is according to truth, that he never judges callously, he never judges unwisely. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And so I trust him, even though it's hard for me to understand. Verse 15, 2 Samuel 12, says, And Nathan departed unto his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted, and went in and lay all night upon the earth. And the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth, but he would not. Neither did he eat bread with them. Here we see in verse 15 that God causes the child to be sick. The child, the toddler at this point in time, I have to imagine, he is never named in Scripture. But I can assure you that the one who would someday strike his own son because of our sin surely knew his name and understood the pain that this little one went through before he died. It is interesting to note here in verse 15 that the Lord says, struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David. The writer here does not call her David's wife, even though they are married and Uriah is dead at this point. He reminds us of the fact that this happened when he was still alive and when he was still married to Bathsheba. And it goes to show us that God does not necessarily look at relationships in the way that we do. The things that we call good, the things that we say it's love, or the things we say is, isn't this wonderful, God doesn't always think that way. David, therefore, when the child got sick, he besought, he besought means to make a verbal request. He began to pray and ask God for the child, for his life. Now, why pray when God already said the child would die? We'll get that answer later on, so store that for an answer later on. And David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. You know, this may be the first time that David has thought about someone other than himself since everything happened, Bathsheba. 
Maybe it would be the first time he realized how his sin affected other people around him besides himself. David, it mentions here, he besought the Lord for the child. It means on behalf of or for the benefit of someone else. David, who had sacrificed all sorts of people to put them between him and God's judgment, he now places himself between God's judgment and the child. Now, some might say, well, that's easy for David to do now. He knows he's not going to die. He's in the clear. But David was never in the clear. David's anguish in Psalm 32, Psalm 38 and 51, those are clear for us. And the truth is, if this child dies, David's going to live with the knowledge that it was his fault for the rest of his life. Any parents out here ever wondered if you messed up your kid because of something you did? Yeah. That's rough enough as it is. Now, here's the truth of it. You did mess. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Truth of it is we're sinners and we have an impact, positive and negative, right? I mean, nobody's perfect. So we all have sometimes negative impacts on our kids. The truth is 99% of the time when we have that thought, that's the enemy trying to condemn us. He's trying to get us to give up or trying to get us to feel like a failure or keep us off the right pace, the right track. It's not the Lord. But David, in this case, (laughs) that is not the case here. David will live forever with the knowledge that it was his fault that this child died. And he'll live with that for the rest of his life. David's genuineness is shown by his refusal to eat, refusal to sleep in his bed. It mentions in verse 17 that the elders of his house, these are the basically the highest ranking servants in his house. They kept coming to him to say, you got you to go sleep in a bed, David. You got to eat. But he would not. David did eat at some point because it mentions here that this went on for seven days. But despite others' attempts to get him to resume some kind of normal life, David refuses. He would not eat like a king. He would eat alone, and he went right back to prayer afterwards. David's discipline here shows us that when you and I sin like this, there is a sense where you have to live with that failure and its consequences for the rest of your life. Because even after we're forgiven, we still remember It's one of the reasons God warns us against these kind of sins. It's kind of like that trope you see in stories or movies a lot where the guy goes for the revenge and then what happens after the revenge doesn't bring the person back, right? Doesn't change what happened. Now, thankfully, that's not the end of the story. (laughs) And if you sin like this, if you've done something that devastated or destroyed others. Well, there's more to tell here. In verse 18, And it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke unto him, and he would not listen unto our voice. How will he then vex himself if we tell him that the child is dead. David lived like this for an entire week. My personal guess is he would have lived like this until the child recovered. 
or the child died. And the concern that his servants have here is, how will he then vex himself? The word there, vex himself, it means to do evil, injury, or harm to yourself. See, David's servants believe that he's having a hard time with the idea of him living on and the child dying, that they're worried here that David's harming himself in the hope that God will somehow see that and spare the child. It's kind of similar to the priest who whips himself or do, you know, does something to somehow make himself more acceptable to God. And so now that God hasn't spared the child, they're worried that the guilt David will experience will cause him to harm himself in an even worse way. Their worry is unfounded, though, because David isn't trying to twist God's arm by inflicting damage upon himself. Like fasting is not the idea, I'm going to hold my breath until you give me what I want, God. I'm not going to eat. That's not what fasting is. We're not some spoiled child trying to make God do something that he doesn't want to do. And that tactic doesn't work anyway because it's just an, an inverted form of legalism. David has a different reason for why he's fasting. And so his next actions confuse his servants. Verse 19, but when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said unto his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. And then David arose from the earth. He washed, took a bath. Anointed himself, means to put on lotions. And he changed his apparel, his clothing, and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. And then he came to his own house, and when he had required, in other words, asked to be served, they set bread before him, and he did eat. David had not bathed, he hadn't put on cologne, hadn't changed his clothing since the child grew ill. He'd been a mess. But now that he's cleaned up, the first thing he does is he goes down to the tabernacle. And when he gets there, he worshiped. Why does David do that first? Well, there's probably lots of reasons. But by doing this, David is communicating to everyone, to his people, to everyone who knew what he'd done, that he isn't angry at God that he deserved worse than this, and so he will worship even though God's answer to his prayer was no. That is what repentance looks like. It's the exact opposite of Pharaoh and Saul. David understood the position he had, the influence that came with it, and by submitting to God's judgment, by worshiping, David's trying to influence everyone in the right way now just as he had influenced a lot of people in the wrong way for the last year or so. David is communicating what I did was wrong, and God doesn't owe me anything. I deserve to die. And so I will accept whatever the Lord sends my way, and I will continue to worship him because he is worthy still. And so while David's behavior for the last year or so has been so far from the heart of God, David's heart of repentance is what truly makes him a man after God's heart. Now, I realize there are those who would say that there can be no redemption for people who do the things that David did. They would say that hell is made for people like David, 
for people who do the things he did. But I would suggest that that view betrays the vile lie that I am better than David, that God owes me better than David, and that therefore the cross is not really necessary after all. The cross is, in reality, just a neat thing to put up on Good Friday to make us feel better about ourselves because someone did something sacrificial. When we read the Gospels, they give the brutal details of Jesus' torture on the cross for our sin for a reason. So that when Pilate says, when Pilate must say, behold the man, because it doesn't even look like one anymore. So we see a mirror image of what we all deserve. Of how ugly my sin is. It's not so we can turn our eyes away and dress up the cross in nicer clothes. When we look at it, it's supposed to smart. It's supposed to challenge everything that we think we are. It's supposed to drive me to my knees in horror at who I am compared to who God created me to be. So I believe that David marching down to the tabernacle when word of his actions has spread for the last seven days... It's probably one of the most faith-filled and courageous things a person can do. David worshipped because he believed there is a life and a future from God, even for those who have destroyed the lives and futures of others. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.